0: The reading this morning is Exodus chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that God had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that came upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done in Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statues and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge over the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their places in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country.
1: Well, let me add to Adrian's welcome and encourage you to turn and to stay with me in Exodus chapter 18. That's printed in the inside page of the diary if you want to follow there. Uh, Before going into ministry, um, I worked in the world of biomedicine. And in the place where I worked, every week someone would come along to present their research to the department. And I remember someone speaking very enthusiastically about how they had found uh, some previously unnoticed vesicles in muscle spindles of rats and there was so much more work to be done to find out what they are and why they're there. And I can see you're desperate to find out more as well. At the end of the talk, there was an opportunity to ask questions, and someone asked, why? Why are you doing this research? What good thing do you hope will come at the end of it? what practical use could there be for this? And the speaker got angry. He said, I get fed up hearing people ask this question. Why does there always have to be some practical outcome? We're studying this because it's there. Now, there's something noble about that, but then again, A lot of effort and design was going into something that as far as anyone could see, it wasn't going anywhere. Something good might come of it, but we have no way of knowing what even that could be. And so far, as we've in effect walked with God's ancient people Israel in this book of Exodus, we could easily wonder the same thing. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the desert east of Egypt, but they do not seem to be clear what kind of people they've been called to be or even where they're going. Is this what God has rescued them for? Was it just because they were there and it was something for God to do? But what happens after their rescue? Well, who knows? It's really to ask the question well, why? Why does God save? And you may be surprised to hear that in this chapter we get some answers to that question. Now, Exodus 18 is actually the story of a reunion. And reunion is a wonderfully powerful thing. What must it have been for Moses here to see his wife and two sons again? They had initially traveled with Moses back to Egypt, but at some point Moses sent them back to Jethro, his father-in-law, to keep them out of harm's way. And this, Exodus 18, is the moment of reunion. Finally, they get confirmation everyone's been kept safe, and now they're back together again. What a moment to capture and record for us! You can almost imagine how you would play that out on a, on, a, on a movie screen, couldn't you? You can almost imagine the soundtrack that would pull on your heartstrings, just the tears that would flow, the depth of the hugs that would be shared. But that's nothing at all of what's recorded here, is it? None of that. If anything, this wonderful moment of reunion is a little incidental detail. No, the most important thing in this chapter is the conversation that Moses has with his father-in-law. So again, we have to ask the question, well, why? Why focus in on that? The other thing is going to move us more, isn't it? There must be something important for us here in this discussion Back in chapter 9, God told Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the reason why he had been raised up to a position of prominence. God says, I've done this. I've let you come to this position of prominence to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. If we're just looking on at God's intervention, to rescue His people Israel from slavery in Egypt, we think, well, that's the mission, right? That's what God's doing. He's rescuing them. That's what His mission is. But God actually says that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. God is doing more than you can see here. And the first part of of Jethro's conversation with Moses, verses 8 through to 12, is the reminder that God rescued Israel for more than Israel. God rescued Israel for more than Israel. And I say that because Jethro is not an Israelite. He is not an Israelite. He's described in verse 1 as the priest of Midian. We were introduced to him back in chapter 2, after Moses had fled from Egypt, he came to the land of Midian, where Moses met and married Zipporah, Jethro's daughter. Jethro's from Midian. He's a Midianite. Now, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham, just like the Israelites were, but not from the line that God gave the promises to If you were with us last week in chapter 17, we saw that some other cousins of the Israelites paid them a visit, the Amalekites. They came to attack them, and in the most cowardly way, cutting off the weak and defenseless who'd fallen behind the large group as they traveled through the desert. Well, here another non-Israelite cousin comes, but Jethro has an entirely different posture chapter 18 is a conversion story. So, look with me at how this unfolds. We're told that once the the niceties had passed, presumably they've acknowledged the warm weather, Moses takes his father-in-law into his tent and shares all that they've been through. And that's the first step here. Jethro hears what God has done. You see that in verse Eight, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. And you mustn't miss that. That is the focus of what Moses tells him. It is all about what the Lord has done. First of all, verse 8, what he'd done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And I don't know how that conversation went. Well, Jethro, Pharaoh was stubborn in his refusal to let the Israelites go. But God was resolute in his commitment to us, and he sent blow after blow upon the nation. The natural world was turned upside down. Water became blood. Day became night. Locusts devoured crops. Illness devoured cattle. And even the firstborn males of every family, human and animal, pharaoh or slave, were killed And then Pharaoh, finally broken, he let us go, but we weren't free yet. They pursued us, but God opened the Red Sea so we could escape, and then he closed it back again, drowning the Egyptians, and we were free from them forever. And God did all of that for us, for these Israelites out there, Jethro. You know, they were all stuck in slavery. They, they, had, they had no rights, they had, they had no wealth, and yet God did all that for them. And then there were the details of how the Lord delivered them from all the hardships that they encountered since. And you know, Jethro, how scarce water and food is out here in the desert. God's been providing for us, provided water from the rock. He's providing fresh food every morning. Now, when Jethro hears that, he responds, and he responds in a number of ways. And the first one is in verse 9, he rejoices. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Now, don't skip over that. I think our instinct is to think, well, of course he would. No, not at all. Not at all. Just, Just slow down for a moment there. I mean, just think about your own experiences of hearing other people's good news. It's actually really hard to rejoice with someone. It's a hard thing. Now, I'm not talking about having resentful envy, though that that is a thing to look out for. But just think, most of the time, you can be pleased to hear someone's good news, but to rejoice with someone in their good fortune. I would put it to you, that rarely happens. And there's a good reason why. Because you only rejoice with those whom you feel some kind of affinity with. When you love someone, then their rejoicing becomes your rejoicing. And why else would Jethro take such delight in what God has done for the Israelites? His affection for Moses has become an affinity with Moses' people. And what God has done for them thrills him, so much so that the next thing he does is he worships. You see that in verse 10, Jethro speaks, he says, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, that's worship language. He doesn't say, well done Moses, but he says, praise the Lord. Jethro understands that a monumental power shift has taken place in his world. Egypt was the superpower of his day. And he says here, and look at the number of times he says this, the Israelites were in the hand of the Egyptians. He says that in verse 9. He says that Moses was in the hand of the Egyptians. The Israelites were in the hand of Pharaoh. They were in the hand of the Egyptians. Four times he uses that language in those two verses. Jethro is in awe at what God has done that he has taken these people out of the hand of the superpower of the day, and he's taken these people to be his own. So, Jethro, he rejoices, he worships, and he's so in awe of what God has done that he submits to God. Verse 11 is like a mini confession that he makes. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all God's because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. You see, there was a simple formula in those days. The nation that was most powerful, the nation that was winning the battles, must have the best gods. Well, now he sees the Egyptian gods for what they are. They are nothing compared to the God of Israel. And that confession that he makes is backed up in verse 12 with his offering of sacrifices to the Lord's. And there is surely something significant where verse 12 ends, that Aaron and all the elders of Israel, they come to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There's an acceptance of Him in their midst, and a real sense that they're doing this before the Lord, a recognition that this man has submitted himself to the same God that they have, So, in summary, we see that here God's great deeds are declared to a foreigner who responds in worship, submission, and sacrifice to the God of Israel. This truly is a conversion story. Jethro came to understand something here that he had never seen clearly before. And we see that God's work to bring people to Him did not stop when the last gallon of the Red Sea was back in place. No, it was the retelling of all that He had done was the means by which He would save others too. That's why I say God rescued Israel for more than Israel, Jethro hadn't witnessed these miraculous happenings. He wasn't there. And yet the benefit of God's work comes to him as the message of what God has done comes to him. And this is God's pattern. Already repeatedly in the book of Exodus, God has instructed His people in how to tell successive generations about these momentous events through which He's rescued them, It was the way that this deliverance would be a present tense reality for every generation that would follow by telling them about it, by commemorating it and never forgetting it. And it's this same principle that the early church had to understand as well. Jesus Christ lived on this earth for a limited time, some 30-odd years, and so His teaching his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his sending the Holy Spirit into the world. These were all things that happened at a specific time in a specific place, and there were apostles and others who were there to see and hear it, to reap the benefits of it. But what about beyond that? Well, this is the pattern that God has set, those who were there will tell others, who will tell others. And it's the necessary first step, as it was for Jethro, as it is for all of us. Everyone needs to hear what God has done to save for us, not from Egypt, but from our sin. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 10, where he almost walks backwards through the steps that we saw Jethro take in our chapter. Romans 10 from verse 9, Paul says, "'If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.'" how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And Jesus has sent His followers to do this, to tell of all that He has done, so that even though you weren't there, you still need to hear that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners, that he laid down his perfect life as the ransom required to free us from our slavery to sin. And you need to respond in worship to God, in submission to God, and in giving yourself to God. Peter could say to Christians who were in exactly that position though you have not seen him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this remains the pattern still, and it remains the mission of the church, to make Jesus known. I mean, it's only because that mission was taken seriously that the the good news of Jesus has been met with rejoicing far from Jerusalem where He died and rose again and has been met with rejoicing and worship and submission and sacrifice even in a place like Bankery. We are believers who have not seen Jesus but who love Him who believe in Him and who receive salvation from Him. And every place, every generation needs to hear that gospel. There's a part two to Moses and Jethro's conversation, and it it takes place the next day when when Jethro sees Moses' heavy workload and it started first thing in the morning. And I suppose it's a bit like, you, you know, if you, if you hope to get a doctor's appointment and you work out that your best bet is to get on the phone at half past eight sharp, right? So you can get in the queue early. But then you're dismayed, aren't you? When the automated message says, even though you were at half eight sharp, you're 20th in the queue. And it's the exact sort of thing for Moses. This is the kind of existence he lived day after day after day. From first thing in the morning, there's a queue of people, and it never goes down. All day long, people are surrounding him. Why? Because they don't know what to do. Sometimes they have a decision to make. Other times they're having a quarrel with someone, and they need someone to, to settle the dispute. This is what it means for Moses to, you see in verse 13, Moses sat to judge the people. This is what it means for him to judge the people, or to rule the people, or, or to bring justice to the people. But we mustn't forget, we've, we've tried to remind ourselves of this, that this huge number of people who came out of Egypt had only ever known a life of slavery. Being free was something they had to learn. They knew what it meant to follow their slave masters, but what does it mean to follow the Lord? And right at the very heart of what Moses is trying to do for the Israelites, you find in his job description in verse 16, he explains himself to Jethro like this, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. If they're going to follow God as God's people, they need to know God. And the way for them to know God is to know the Word of God. That's Moses' job description, to pass on to them God's Word. Now, God is going to give them the law. That's coming from chapter 20 for a couple of books worth. But for now, Moses is bearing the whole load himself. And Jethro sees that Moses, who is in his 80s, which as you know is no age to be running a country, he's going to burn himself out in how he's going about things. Jethro sees that what Moses is trying to achieve is is right, And so instructs Moses to make some changes that will keep God's great purposes for his people in view. Doesn't try to change Moses' job description, but presents a reorganization, a reworking of things that is in step with why God saves. Because God rescued Israel so they would know him. God rescued Israel so they would know Him, and everything in the life of Israel must be geared towards that. And so, wisely, Jethro analyzes the situation for Moses, and he makes it plain, perhaps uh, in the way that only a father-in-law can. He says to him in verses 17 and 18, Moses, this is not good. This is too heavy a burden. It will wear you out, you are not able to do this alone. Now, think about this. Moses was God's appointed leader of Israel. He had unrivaled access into the presence of God. He truly knew God in a way that none of the others did. And so, of course, they want to go to Moses and and ask him for his wisdom. He's the guy. But Moses is not up to the task. This nation is made up of tens, hundreds of thousands of people. How could he possibly make God known to all of them? It's a situation that demands a better solution, and I'm not referring to the practical arrangement that they put in place here. I mean something even bigger than that is needed. There's only so much Moses can do. There's only so many people Moses can help. And it leaves us almost yearning here for one who is better than Moses, one who can do more than Moses can. Because I want access to the one who has access to God. And who could ever be up to that for me and for you and for you and for you and for people all around the world? Well, as God's plan of salvation the world unfolds, as we read through the pages of Scripture, God reveals how each one of His people can know Him with full access. And He describes it as a new covenant. Listen to these words that came through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, "'Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt,' This is what's needed. God writing his law and statutes on the heart of his people. A way for each one to know the Lord. And that promise that came through Jeremiah finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, we're told that he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is what he came to bring his people into, knowing the Lord through faith in him on the basis of his sacrifice with the promise that he'll give a new heart, a new heart by the Holy Spirit within each one. You do not need to queue up before Moses, or a pope, or a pastor, in order to know God. You come to Jesus Christ, who promises to come personally to each one who comes in faith, and He promises to take up residence within by His Spirit, so that you will know the Lord. This is why God saves, to know Him. And we do learn from Moses and Jethro that everything within the community of God's people is to be geared towards that end. Knowing the Lord really is the most important thing. If you're going to make wise choices, if you're going to settle disputes, if you're going to live a life that really honors the Lord, then you need to know Him. And so Moses is encouraged to keep on representing the people before God, keep on, verse 20, keep on teaching the statutes and the laws, keep on showing God's people how they must live as God's people. But Moses, you've got to delegate, because if they depend upon you alone, then most people are going to miss out. And so in the community of God's people here, who is it that's to help Moses it's what Jethro describes in verse 21 as able men from all the people. Look for able men. Surely he means good speakers. Surely he means good organizers. No. First and foremost, he means people of character. Look what he describes, what he means by able men men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, men who are committed to justice, who hate a bribe. You see, God is always far more interested in the qualities of the heart than He is with the skills of the hand or the mind. And look at the organization that they put in place. Some over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. This help is needed on the big scale, but just think about what those groups of ten might be. They're family units in this nation of Israel. That's where able men are needed as well, who will teach God's Word, who will teach what it means to know God. They all need to know the Lord. And it remains the purpose for why God saves. It's so easy for us to lose perspective on this, isn't it? We sometimes think that that God saves us to make us busy. And though the Christian life usually is a busy life, it must always be driven by this knowing the Lord. And so even for us in our small church here in Bankery, there is, there is much to do. But we must pray that it would never be at the expense of this, knowing and rejoicing in the Lord, finding real joy in our relationship with Jesus Christ, so that whether you have responsibility to care for hundreds or fifties, or tens, or one, that it's speaking the Word of God to one another in love that will build us up to know the Lord better, to know the depth of the love of Christ better. Dear friends, if you're here today and you're a Christian, God has saved you to know Him and saved you so that you might help the rest of your spiritual family to know Him too. And we can only do that through faith in Jesus. And we grow in that when we see that we are in this together. So what will that mean for the kind of conversations that we'll have, even in 20 minutes' time when we're having tea and coffee? What will that mean for the discussions that we have when we get together at other times outside of Sundays? Everybody needs to know the Lord. Those who've never known him need to know him for the first time. And we who do know him, we need to continue to find a deepening joy in knowing him more. Because it's only as we know him that we can really, truly serve Him and honor Him and give sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. Why does the Lord save? He saves you for more than just you, and He saves that we might know Him. Amen.